This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 31st, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're going to be looking at a couple of interesting developments in the area of taxes. It's been kind of a quiet week. This is always one of those interesting times. We're heading into the Memorial Day holiday weekend. Congress is heading out of town. A lot of DCs heading out of town. So we didn't have a lot going on this week, but we do have a couple of things we can discuss. So we'll do that and see how it works. The first case we're going to look at is a case where a taxpayer discovered that her documentation for a charitable contribution did not meet the requirements found in the code and regulations. And the penalty for that little oversight is total loss of rather large charitable contribution in her case. And secondly, we're going to get an IRS ruling on what qualifies as a 1202 business. And we'll discuss briefly what 1202 is, uh, why you might want to have a 1202 business, and then specifically how this particular retail sales of drugs that were of a prescription nature, how that was deemed by the IRS to qualify for 1202, why there were concerns it might not, and just basically discuss why 1202 also has a little bit of spillover on the 199 Cap A rules because the, the basically one of the lists we find in the 1202 rules for things that cannot be a 1202 activity was borrowed to become the list of things that are specified service trades or businesses for purposes of the 199 Cap A qualified business income deduction. Even though the regulations under 199 Cap A do, at least at times, differ from what we found for 1202, or these were borrowed from, the Qualified Personal Service Corporation rules as well. And we'll discuss where they're, they're mainly the same, but there are some areas where they differ. So we'll take a look at those issues. So with that, let's start with the case of Albrecht versus Commissioner. This is a tax court memorandum decision 2022-53. The case and the opinion was published on May the 25th of 2022. Now, in this case, we have a taxpayer who made a contribution to a museum. It was a non-cash contribution of items to a museum in this case. So about December 19th of 2014, she gave 120 items from her collection to the Wheelwright Museum of the American Indian, right? And she's in Albuquerque. So this, this is a New Mexico case would go to the Tenth Circuit if there was an appeal. And we'll talk about how this worked, but basically there is no question she gifted the items to the museum. There is no question they were used by the museum for their charitable purpose. The IRS is not disputing the value that she assigned to these, at least in this case. So you might wonder, well, wait, there was a contribution. Nobody disputes the contribution was made. IRS doesn't dispute that. IRS does not dispute that this contribution was for the charitable purpose of the museum and was used by the museum in furthering their charitable purpose. And they're not arguing about the value. So what's the problem here? Well, the problem we run into is there are rather strict rules for documentation. 
There is a rule called the Contemporaneous Written Acknowledgement Rule found in, basically, we get there, in IRC Section 170. And specifically, found in 170, uh, you'll find this particular item is found in 170 F8. Got the right reference there. And basically, we're going to talk about any charitable contribution, whether cash or non-cash, any charitable contribution for which the item has a value of $250 or more. Now, some other rules kick in as we get to higher cost levels, but let's ignore that for right now because you still got to meet these base rules even if we get to the appraisal rules. Okay. So, what has to be in this written acknowledgement? Every charitable contribution for $250 or more must have a acknowledgement from the charity of the amount of cash and a description, but they do not have to provide the value of any property other than cash contributed, right? So either how much cash did you give or what did you give? Those are the first two requirements to receive from the charity. Secondly, whether the donee organization, you know, the charity, provided any goods or services in consideration in whole or in part for any of that property, the donation. You know, did you, in exchange for your donation to a college football program, end up getting, you know, season tickets? Let's say something of that sort, right? So then we have to get into that and we have to provide uh, the value of what we got. So maybe we gave a half million dollars to a college football program and we got season tickets. Well, the season tickets aren't worth a half million dollars. So we'd get an estimate from the college of what the value of those season tickets was worth. And then we would reduce the contribution by that amount. Now, the problem in this case, right, and it does have to be contemporaneous. And the key issue there is there are two issues there that aren't at dispute here. But the acknowledgement in question must be received on or before the earlier of the date on which the taxpayer files a return for the taxable year in which the contribution was made or the due date, including extensions for filing such a return. So bottom line, right? It's going to be the earlier of those two dates. Now, this brings us into the basic issue that we have to have it before we file the return. And if we file late, we have to show we had it before the due date, or if we at least obtained an extension, the extended due date of the return in question. So that's also a key because what that means is if we have a flaw in our contemporaneous written uh, document, you can't correct that on exam. If that's a flawed CWA, once we filed the return, we're pretty much stuck with it. Now, we all know that a return filed before April 15th or the original due date is deemed filed on that date. So in theory, we could correct it through the original due date. Uh, in theory, maybe through the extended due date. That's not at all clear because it would seem somewhat redundant to say the date you filed it, the earlier of the date you filed it, or the extended or regular due date. So there is some concern that the IRS, even for a timely filed return, one filed without extension, could still try to argue that you still had to have it before you sent the return off. 
So that's a key. But the practical aspect of this is we can't fix this problem on exam because I'm sure somebody's going to wonder, wait, if this was her only problem, couldn't she have gotten a further update from the charity that would have solved the problem? Answer was no, it's too late. And we'll briefly discuss a case that basically showed us why it's just too late, guys. You can't do it at that point in time. So what was the problem in her case? I mean, you know, okay, we know she gave it. But the catch came in the acknowledgement, right? She received a deed of gift on December 19, 2014 uh, that consisted of a few pages, right? The first page stated that she donates the material described below, right, to the Wheelwright Museum of the American Indian under the terms and conditions stated in the conditions governing gifts to the Wheelwright Museum of the American Indian. Immediately after that clause was the heading, Description of Material, see attached. The first page had the, the logos, her address, uh, her donor identification number, as well as the signature of both her and museum official. So far, so good, right? This looks good right now, right? The second page said conditions governing gifts to the Wheelwright Museum of the American Indian. Remember, that was referenced on the D, right? And specified conditions governing gifts to this museum. One of those conditions stated in part that the donation is unconditional and irrevocable. All rights, titles, and interests held by the donee in the property are included the donation unless otherwise stated in the gift agreement. We're going to discover this is going to be our problem. What this has done now is referenced a potential gift agreement, right? That is not incorporated in the documents we're going to have. This will be our problem as we get here, right? The final pages of the deed listed the items of donated property. And despite that gift agreement reference on the second page of the deed, no such agreement was included with the deed. And the Wheelwright Museum did not provide her with any other written documentation regarding this gift. So this is where the IRS says, aha, you have failed taxpayer. Their statement was, is we have this gift agreement, this third party extra paper gift agreement could provide various conditions, rights and restrictions on what was given conceivably could even include provisions that would not allow the charity to make use of the property without paying certain fees. You know, we don't know. This agreement could have anything in it. It's open-ended. So the IRS says because of that, the document never acknowledged that the taxpayer received no goods or services, nor did it tell us if she did receive goods or services, what the nature of those goods and services were, and their fair value. Now, the taxpayer argues, well, that's because there was no outside gift agreement. And so, you know, because there is none, right, this, this is perfectly good. We gave up all our rights unconditionally and said, we'll see that that's it. The deed is the entirety of what we gave. So now our problem becomes, does this gift agreement that's not provided, is that a problem? And the tax court decided that it was. The tax court agreed with the IRS. 
the deed itself is incomplete. Now, if she had received a document that said the deed contains everything, the entire agreement is part of this deed. In that situation, there'd be no question, right? If this is the entirety of the agreement, the agreement did not provide for her receiving any payments, then it would have qualified. But the problem was this deed left open this chance of having a gift agreement. Now, if there had been a gift agreement attached that said, you know, in this particular case, the donor reserves no rights whatsoever and, you know, the museum is not required to make any payments nor has the museum made any payment to the donor for this gift, that would have been good enough, right? Had we seen the gift agreement. Potentially, had we seen the gift agreement, it might not have even needed to go that far. It would have been better had we had the statement that also this constitutes the entirety of the agreement. There are no other documents out there. But the court found because it referenced an unknown agreement, right, an agreement that was not provided, the taxpayer, you know, didn't show the museum had ever given to her to document what was being done. She hadn't provided it. That's it. Sorry, guys, the IRS is right and you get none of the deduction for the amount you contributed to this charity. In essence, sorry guys, a minor footfall, which the court obviously actually said they did not assess any penalties. They said clearly this taxpayer, Ms. Albrecht, was trying to comply with the rules. You know, she thought this was adequate. Presumably the museum thought this was adequate. Presumably her advisors thought this was adequate. But the court said you have to strictly follow this rule. Now, the courts have been very strict here because Congress got upset over time and kept ratcheting up the documentation requirements because so many taxpayers were cheating. Essentially, let's be honest. I think everybody's been in practice for a few years, has had at least one client walk in the door at some point in their career, and when asked about charitable contribution, get a response somewhere along the lines of, how much does the IRS allow me to have? And when your answer goes back and says it's zero and except, you know, what you gave and you have to, you know, what you gave, they're like, no, 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 no. I, I know they publish standards and, you know, they won't question me if we're below that level. And hopefully you told them, I don't care if you didn't give it, I'm not signing return with it on it. But nevertheless, that concept because it turns out there were a lot of people that pushed the envelope and, you know, would just claim it because that was the easiest thing to do. Congress enacted stricter and stricter rules on documentation. Now, I should say even now, the 250 is not a perfect defense either. You will find even below 250, you either have to show something like a check, you know, some sort of check, bank draw, third-party evidence of the contribution, or you have to have a receipt from the charity. So if you just walk by a Salvation Army bell ringer over the holidays and throw $10 in the pot and you don't get a receipt because you don't stop there and have this guy, yeah, you got to write me a receipt right now. Um, you can't take a contribution for that $10 because you can't meet the requirements. We are now under what's effectively a strict zero-based charitable contribution rule. And, you know, any agent can take that position. It is fully supported by the law. The law does not allow an out for this. 
Now, the taxpayer tried to argue there was substantial compliance. And the court found, no, you didn't really get close enough here. We absolutely need this reference to you didn't get anything. This left totally open the chance that you were effectively being paid amounts that meant you really never gave up the ownership, right? There were all kinds of potential problems there. So the court had that issue. And this isn't the first time this came up. In fact, a much a case I remember from back in 2012 was the case of Durden versus Commissioner. And this was a case that actually illustrates why you can't fix the problem on exam. In the case of Durden, which is Tax Court Memo 2012-140, in this case, Mr. Durden had made cash contributions uh, to a, I believe it was a, a Christian school. I can't remember the exact details of what he gave. But there's little doubt he gave what was going to be essentially uh, nearly $25,000 in a single deduction, or at least, or a series of deductions that each were more than two fifty. So he gave over $25,000 to the school. The church gave him a receipt with the date, right, with the amount. But without that nice little note that no goods or services other than an intangible religious benefit had been received by Mr. Durden in exchange for this contribution. On exam, that was noted, right? So he went back to the church and they gave him a new acknowledgement that said everything the old one did, but had the line added at the bottom, no goods or services were provided in exchange for this contribution. In that case, the tax court said, well, we have two different acknowledgements here, both of which are flawed. The first one's flawed because it didn't say what Mr. Durden got. So that acknowledgement cannot justify his contribution. Right? He's not going to be able to claim the contribution based on that acknowledgement. Sorry, guys, you can't get it. That one's just done. This one is not going to work. So then we go to the second issue on an acknowledgement. Well, what about the second one? The second one makes clear he didn't get anything. And again, IRS never disputed the fact that Mr. Durden didn't get anything. However, the court said, problem is Congress gave a very specific date in the law by which you had to have this acknowledgement and you didn't have it in time. So despite the fact that you had an acknowledgement, despite the fact that you didn't get anything for this contribution and nobody disputes that fact, despite the fact that, you know, there, there's no question that this was a contribution. And there's no question if that line had been on the initial acknowledgement, you would get the contribution. You don't get it. The law is very strict here. As a practical matter, I see less of it these days because I think uh, ministers and presidents of charities, you know, chairs of boards and stuff have now learned the hard way not to skip this. The bigger problem is a case like Mr. Durden, where you make a large contribution, a specifically, well, at least relatively large in this case, contribution that the, let's say, you know, the minister at the church uh, wants to personally acknowledge. He doesn't want some crazy, you know, the, this little impersonal receipt, the standard receipt they give out. So he wants to go ahead 
and have this very, very, you know, personal letter from him, from the minister, signed by the minister, or signed by, in one case I saw it, signed by a bishop of a diocese that acknowledged this gift. Great. But they don't make that statement because they don't understand why they should. Secondly, it seems kind of almost insulting to say, yeah, we didn't pay you anything for this. So it's left off. If that's the acknowledgement your client has, you've got to send them back before you complete the return to get a corrected acknowledgement. Extend the return if necessary, but do not finish a return without that acknowledgement. You know, there's a reason why Albrecht, because of Durden and the history of cases like Durden, you know, those advising Albrecht in the tax court case, there was no point in going back to the charity and getting an acknowledgement. That wasn't going to work at this date. Rather, we were past that. We had to be able to try to defend the acknowledgement she received by the proper due date. A later update wasn't possible. So be very aware of that. Whenever you have a client that's making a significant charitable contribution, you, you want to be very sure that that contribution, you know, that, that you document it properly, shall we say, right? You know, that you have the right documents before the contribution is made. I strongly suggest if your client makes a large contribution, especially to a church or synagogue where you may find the leader of the congregation wanting to sign the document in a personal letter, you make sure that they've got a valid acknowledgement that, you know, what's your acknowledgement? What's your documentation? I'm looking for this line and we need to find it. That's a big problem. Next up, and actually the only other uh, thing we have this week is private letter ruling 2022-21006 issued on May the 27th. Now, this goes back to section 1202 of the code. Now, section 1202, if you're not aware of what 1202 is, 1202 is, is a provision that allows us to exclude, well, if at least if you acquired the stock in question after, you know, the most recent date. And as I recall, uh, let's see, that, that was after 2007, 9, I think 2009. I can't remember the date right off. But anything you've acquired like in the past decade in a C corporation, it has to be a C corp, that you got your stock, right? It's operated as a C-Corp during the entire time it's a C-Corp. It was a qualified tra trader business, meets those requirements. When you sell that interest, it has to be a qualified trader business for substantially all of, its, all of the time you held the stock. And that's going to be key, right? For that reason, it does appear that we can actually sell the assets and move to immediate liquidation. Because it didn't say it had to always be just substantially all. So if we liquidate and sell immediately, it appears we still get our 1202 exclusion. But it has to be this thing called a qualified trader business. Now, the qualified trader business rules, right? That's where the issue here. The taxpayer in this case, a qualified trader business, is essentially defined as everything except... And one of the accepts, there are exceptions here for various types of businesses, farming or banking, insurance, finance, leasing, investing, or other businesses. There's farming businesses, uh, including raising or harvesting trees, 
uh, production or extraction of a product that's subject to depletion, right? Or any business of operating a hotel, motel, restaurant, or similar business. Okay, those are certain categories, but there's another one that they borrowed from the rules for qualified for basically for personal service corporations. And that was to exclude. You could not be a personal service corporation and treat that as a 1202 business. And that includes any trade or business involving the performance of services in the field of health, law, engineering, architecture, accounting, actuarial science, performing arts, consulting, athletics, financial services, brokerage services, or any trade or business where the principal asset of such trade or business is the reputation or skill of one or more of its employees. Our concern today is with that list, which is much like the personal service corporation list. And I should say, you should that should, that should sound familiar when you looked at your qualified business income rules, because that list is basically, to a large extent, what's a specified service trade or business, with one major change in that engineering and architecture came out of that list. But aside from those two, it is the same list. In fact, it even cross-references this section, except it pulls those two out. So what was our business here? Well, obviously, as you may guess, they're getting ready to sell. And now some people want to say, look, if I'm going to exclude a, let's say, $9 million gain on my return, I don't want the IRS to come back later and say this didn't qualify and nail me for penalties and interest on what could be a fairly big check, even as a capital gain. So I want them to tell me that this thing qualifies as a 1202 business, you know, before I take that position on my return. So they're in the process of selling this business. Now, what this business was, it was involved in the retail sales, right? Of certain prescription drugs, right? So essentially, and what they did, right? The employees were pharmacists and others, right? The pharmacists would fill prescriptions received from physicians and other employees dealt with the insurance coverage uh, or shipping or those sorts of things. But this company actually only got the prescriptions to fill, shipped to the customers, shipped to basically the patients, but didn't have any direct contact really otherwise or provide any advice to either the physicians or the patients. Very limited outside contact with either. So they had some pharmacists because you need pharmacists there to do, you know, to supervise the prescribing, make sure it's in proper form, do some basic checks for it's appropriate, right? It doesn't obviously interact with something that appears to be overlooked, that sort of thing a pharmacist would do. But otherwise, it just shipped out. Now, they're arguing that, you know, they're trying to say, well, we're really kind of more like just a standard retail business, right? We buy inventory. We then, you know, take that inventory from the drug companies. We bring it into our business. And then we distribute, you know, we sell it out on the retail sale with the one quirk being that a physician has to approve and direct us to do this, but we go ahead then and we take care of it. We handle the insurance. That's how we're getting paid. We're really selling stuff just like any other business, right? Any other trader business. The concern was though, could they be a healthcare or a reputation trader business? That was their concern. So could this be a healthcare business 
or could this be a trader business on the reputation or skill of one or more employees? Because let's remember, we have pharmacists here and we are, at least in some sense, using their skill. We couldn't operate this business of selling these drugs unless we had pharmacists who meet certain licensing requirements and are supervised by the state under the licensing rules. We couldn't operate this business. So are we in trouble either way? And the pharmacists are probably our big concern. You know, are, does this make us a healthcare trader business? And so they were looking for a ruling. And the IRS in this case ruled that they were not engaged in the provision of medical services. Other than the pharmacists, most employees are not certified healthcare providers, not otherwise regulated under federal law. So, and I think that, you know, the taxpayer probably was concerned about them at all. But understand, in a medical practice, we have a physician. And even though the other employees may not be subject to licensing in the same way as a physician, or may not be licensed at all, they're still kind of necessary to support this. Somebody has to send in the medical billing stuff. You know, somebody has to handle booking appointments. And at least a lot of those administrative tasks that take place. So merely the fact there are some employees that do things that aren't necessarily healthcare. I mean, handling the appointments could be very similar to handling the appointments for an accounting firm or a law firm. It's not that different in that regard of booking times. But it doesn't matter, you know, so the question becomes, what about the pharmacist? And so then the letter ruling goes on and describes the pharmacist. The taxpayer's pharmacist fill prescriptions provided by healthcare professionals. So this is probably somewhat important here. They're working essentially under the direction of the physician who is sitting in between them effectively and the patient. That's the key issue, right? Right. That's what they do. And other employees help manage the insurance process and occasionally communicate with patients regarding prescription items. Right. And timely refill requests. Any interaction with patients regarding their prescriptions is merely incidental to ensuring receipt of their required prescriptions or answering a patient's questions about that you know, process of getting my prescriptions. They do not provide any diagnostic service or medical care to either the patients or the physicians, right? And all revenues for this business are not generated by being paid for your advice. They're generated by selling the drugs. So the, you know, they said, you're fine, you're not healthcare. Also, they said that you're also not a, re a basically a reputation trader business. And that pretty much comes down to, they said, their principal asset is their exclusive distribution rights to this particular drug, which is what they had. That is their principal asset. The principal asset is not the skill of their pharmacist. If you want to get this particular drug, right, at least in at least some geographic area, whatever, they had exclusive distribution rights. As such, that was their asset. Their asset was the rights. Right? You, you didn't come there because they got great pharmacists. If you were going to get that, you had to go through them. You know, the doctor wasn't sending you there because of their great pharmacist. You just had to go through them. The real asset was their distribution rights, not the fact that they might have the world's most skilled pharmacist. They may have, you know, they might have the world's best pharmacist, but that's not why you're going through them, right? You're going through them because of their distribution rights.
So for this reason, the IRS found that this was a 1202 trader business. As I've said before, right, the QBI rules, qualified business income, the, you know, the deduction for qualified business income, the rules do reference back to 1202. And while some of the definitions for 1202 and 109-CAP-A and the regs are different, 1202 really never got regs of any major sort to flesh this out. 1202 did. We had some guidance. And the Qualified Personal Service Corporation rules, which is really what they cross-reference back to in the 109-CAP-A regs and discuss some differences that, doesn't, that don't bother them, uh, in this case, for the most part, the 1202 regulations or 1202 treatments have followed the Qualified Personal Service Corporation treatments, and it appears nothing in the QBI regulations suggests we'd get a different result than for 1202 here. So my guess is if you're worried about whether a business like this is a qualified, is a specified service trader business, I think this provides you with additional support that this type of structure would not be a QBI, even though it is involved in healthcare, not er it's involved in the health industry. Not everything involved in the health industry is considered health care. And they talk about the distinction here of providing care to patients versus just selling a product related to health care. You know, they've had a similar ruling on people, let's say, that run medical billing services. Yes, they're involved in the healthcare system, but they're not providing medical care. So you have a client that does billing for a bunch of physicians' offices. That activity is not SSTB, right? It's not a specified service trader business, and it's highly unlikely it's, it's going to even fall under the risk of the skill because we know under the QBI rules, we were told reputation and skill basically almost never exists unless you're paying somebody for an endorsement. So we're probably okay there. So this probably can help you in some case to understand healthcare-related businesses. It's not directly tied to QBI, but I think you could argue strongly that this indicates what the type of division would be for qualified business income. And don't forget about 1202, especially now with lower corporate rates that right now don't appear to be moving, at least we have nothing currently that's moving through Congress that would raise these rates that appears likely to be enacted anytime soon, you may want to consider the C-Corporation route too because one of the reasons why we use C-Corps before the 1986 Tax Act was the, the real problem is not the double taxation normally from year to year running your C-Corp unless you become insanely successful. And then we have the excess compensation problem or, in essence, the unreasonable accumulations problem. But if you don't have that, the real problem tends to be that a successful C-Corp is going to build up intangible goodwill inside the company and double taxation of that on the eventual sale of the business is when we have our big problem. But, under the pre-1986 rules, we could use what's called the General Utilities Doctrine. At that time, it was under 336. As I recall, it was incorporated in there where you where it had a specific rule that got statutory that said that, you know, if you were liquidating the business, you were under a plan of liquidation that was going to be completed within a year that you didn't recognize any gain or loss on the sale of those assets inside the corporation as you were liquidating. Well, that eliminated the double tax from the inside perspective. 
This eliminates a double tax from the outside perspective, right? Because the problem, if you don't have, you know, if you don't have this, is we pay tax on selling those assets as we liquidate inside the C corp, and then because the shareholder gets no step up in basis as a C corp because of gains recognized inside the C corp, we end up paying tax again on that. But this eliminates that second outside tax, which at current tax rates very likely is a higher rate than what you're paying inside the corporation. So we're getting out of the higher tax. And it's probably therefore going to be better than operating even as an S corporation where yes, you only pay one tax, but that tax is going to be the outside tax, right? On the individual shareholder, which is probably at a higher rate than the C corp tax. So 1202 is interesting, but you obviously have to know which businesses qualify and which don't. And there are more requirements than just being in one of these, you know, not being in one of these categories. There are other rules about the total value, you know, basically the total assets of the company, uh, how you acquire the shares, some rules that you can't redeem somebody and immediately issue new shares. You can't buy it from another party, so you can't buy shares in this company from another shareholder and have that qualify. The rules are more involved, but if you haven't looked at 1202, I suggest you take a look there. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 31st, 2022, right? We're here at the end of May. So we're about to enter June. We're going to come into summer. That's something we look forward to here in Phoenix, but we're about to come into it. Uh, so hopefully you had a good Memorial Day weekend and you're back on the, you know, you're back getting back into your tax stuff. Remember, we're coming up on the first S or the second estimated tax due date. The first one after the April 15th date. So, you know, you might want to remember that, get anything going there you might need. Uh, we will be uh, back with you next week, hopefully, for some new developments. What comes up, maybe they'll do a few things this week since we'll be back in town. It'll probably be a little slow again because they're not going to be, they're obviously not in town on Monday. They're coming back Tuesday. So it's again going to be, it's going to be a short week. Uh, but, they may get stuff up and running by the end of the week. We'll see what comes. Remember, I do monitor some of the Connect sites uh, for state societies I'm a member of. So I do look at Connect in Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, and also kind of monitor anything that's posted on Idaho's site. So if you have any issues and you're a member of one of those societies, feel free to post something there. If I think I can help, I'll try to post something if I have time and see that there's something that I can work with. So we'll, you know, look at that. Otherwise, take care. Have a good week. We'll see you back here next week, hopefully, for more current federal tax developments.